Would you grab out your Bible, please? We're going to be in Matthew today. If you've been with us for some time, we were actually working through an expository series in the book of Revelation, but today we're going to push pause on that series and we're going to go to a resurrection text that is befitting of the occasion. So would you please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. We're going to read the first couple of paragraphs here. When you find out, let's go ahead and stand up together for the reading of God's Word, especially as we acknowledge as believers that God's Word is inspired, it is inerrant, it is the infallible Word of the only true and living God. We're in Matthew, chapter 28. Let's read from verses 1 to 10 together this morning, hearing here the authoritative Word of the living God. Now, after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. What we're celebrating today on Resurrection Sunday, it is beautiful and it is true. There are things in the world that are beautiful that are not true. And as you know, there are things in this world that are true, but they are not beautiful. And this is both. This is both beautiful and it is true. This is not a legend that has somehow gained steam over time. This is not mythology that we're talking about today. This is not some sort of a a delightful fairy tale that wraps up well in the end. But this is true. This is the true story of the resurrection of the Son of God. It is true in every sense that a fact or an assertion can be true. It is true historically. It is true literally. It is true in reality. It is true spiritually for you and for me. This is true existentially. This is deeply and powerfully true and real. This story that we are reading today, this is light in a world of darkness. Please understand that. This story that we're looking at today, this is love in the midst of a world of of hatred. This story is life in a world that is mired in death. This story is hope in a world that 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 is besotten in despondency. This is the gospel that we believe. This is what makes us Christians. This is the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead. And if you're a materialist today, then what I'm about to tell you is going to be hard for you to grapple with. Because if you're a materialist, then your worldview, by definition, rules out any such thing that would be called supernatural. More on that term in just a moment. If you're a materialist today, and then what you believe is that everything around you, this whole world, is, is nothing but 
what they say, matter in motion, right? So there's stuff. There's atoms and there's molecules and there's substance before you. But if you're a materialist, then you don't have things in your worldview like supernatural resurrections. And so this is going to be hard for you. I grant that. Uh, your own worldview, if you're a materialist, will sort of box you in here. Now, you may say to yourself, well, it's my intellect that boxes me in. I might push back on that and say it's your ignorance that, that actually boxes you in here because the supernaturalist worldview is actually bigger than a materialist worldview is. It allows for things like marvel and wonder and miracle and supernaturalism. So, so let me actually split a hair here and set up three different categories of occurrences. Now stay with me here because this is the, the main thrust of the sermon. If you miss this, you're going to be lost. So hang with me right now or be lost for the rest of the sermon. Thomas Aquinas was a medieval theologian. He lived 1225 to 1275, something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Thomas Aquinas uh, said that there are three basic categories of occurrences in the world. He says, on one hand, there are things that are natural. And then there are things that are preternatural. I'll define it in just a moment. And then there are things that are supernatural. Now, let's just define each one of those terms. Thomas Aquinas says that there are things that are natural. Now, the natural is what happens all around us. These things typically do not surprise us because the natural is what normally or usually, or we might even say always happens, okay? So when you see something natural, it may be beautiful, but it's not necessarily surprising to you because the natural world is what we expect to take place. If I took a rock and threw it up into the air, very naturally it would come back down again because of gravity. That doesn't surprise anybody in the room. If an apple falls off a tree, it rots because that's what an apple does in nature, supposing, of course, that somebody doesn't eat it first. If you take a piece of iron and you throw it into a lake, it's going to naturally sink to the bottom because that's what we expect in the natural category. And so Thomas Aquinas says, whenever you see the world around you operating in the, world, in the way that it should, the way things normally, usually, indeed, always operate, we call that the natural. But then Thomas Aquinas says there's another category called the preternatural now, this may be a new term for some of you, so let me, let me define it very carefully here. The preternatural, by the way, preter means beyond. Okay? So the preternatural, according to Aquinas, are those things that don't ordinarily happen. These are very shocking and surprising when they do happen. But here, pay, pay careful attention, the preternatural is that which is astonishing because of mystery, but yet, nevertheless, it can be explained by causes that are created, okay? Causes that are created. Now, in Thomas Aquinas' world, uh, in the medieval world, virtually nobody doubted the existence of God. Virtually nobody doubted the angelic realm or the demonic realm, the realm of spirits and things like this. People took strange phenomena and they often assigned it to one of these sort of created causes. Maybe an angel did it, maybe a demon did it, maybe a spirit did it. And so for Thomas Aquinas, he has to have a box called preternatural, which are weird, mysterious events, but yet explainable because of things that God has made. So this is the world of angels, yes? But then Thomas Aquinas says that there's a third category, and this is what he calls truly supernatural. And of course, super means above nature, preternatural beyond nature, supernatural above nature, Aquinas says that the supernatural realm is the realm of occurrences in which only God himself can do these things. Only God. No angel, no demon, no spirit. Only God. Now, 
What's interesting about these three categories is that these are the same three categories of events that we see in Matthew chapter 28. Did you notice? It's all there. So let's go back through Matthew chapter 28 and let's pull out a little bit of each one of these three categories. We're going to see some things that we can attribute to natural causes. We're going to see other things that we can attribute to preternatural causes. And then, of course, there's at least one thing here that must be supernatural. And if you don't have a supernaturalistic worldview, you're going to be locked into the material realm and this will be of no avail to you. Okay. So grab your Bible out with me. This works best if we all have our Bibles on our laps. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible. Best practices, by the way, is to bring your own Bible so that you can highlight in it and take notes in the margins and things like this. But let's go back through this text and let's pull out a little bit of each category. First, let's look at the natural. Let's just start there because that's where the text starts. In chapter 28, verse 1, it starts in the natural world. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Stop right there. Pause. That's the natural world. This story begins in a graveyard, let's say. Now, obviously, we could go back to Good Friday and look at the cross, and Lord willing, we will in a little bit here in this sermon. We could go back further to the manger, the incarnation of Christ. We could go all the way back to the creation of the world if we want to, but for the purposes that we have this morning, Matthew chapter 28 begins in a tomb, in a graveyard. There's dead bodies here, right? Death is, of course, very natural. It is what usually happens, by definition. The natural is what always happens. The natural is what we come to expect. It's what normally happens. And the fact of the matter is this. People do normally die. In fact, there's almost 8 billion people on planet Earth today. And it, every, uh, every, every day, I looked it up. I didn't just know this. Every day, 330,000 people die. That's kind of crazy to think about. But that's what normally happens. Nothing mysterious there. People, people die. In, in fact, uh, in one minute, 231 people die. In fact, I, I timed myself earlier. It took me about 60 seconds to read the text this morning. 231 people died somewhere in the world. If you're doing the math, that's, that's like four people every second. There's four. There's four more. There's four more. Death is what naturally happens since the fall all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve fell into sin and brought death into the world. Death is what we expect. Death is what comes to all of us. Death, I'll go further. Death is what happens to every single living creature, no matter how great or how small or how beautiful or how alerting it is. Death is what happens to narwhals and, and elephants and ferns, all the way down to microscopic little creatures that we can hardly even see with the eyes. Single-celled organisms, they will die. Every living creature is going to die, and that is natural. That is what we ought to expect. In fact, if you haven't grappled with this reality yet, you probably should pretty soon that every single person in this room is going to die someday. There's no avoiding it. In fact, if every single one of us were to gather together again next Easter, some of us won't be here because some of us will have died between now and then. That's just reality. And what else is natural here in this text? What's natural here is the grief that the women are experiencing. Go back and look at the verse again. 
What are they doing here? Why did they come? Well, they came to the tomb. And the other Gospels, Mark tells us, for instance, that they've come to anoint the body of Jesus with spices, which, by the way, has no power to do anything at all. Okay, why were they bringing spices to the tomb? Because they're grieving a loss. Uh, they're mourning. They are beside themselves with sadness. Their friend, their teacher, their rabbi has just died and they don't know what else to do other than to do something that's gracious and kind, the kind of act of a, that a friend would do. And so they come to the tomb because they couldn't the previous day because it was the Sabbath, right? And so they come to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body because they're grieving. Now again, if you're a materialist, well, what is grief to you? Well, grief is the firing of synapses in the brain. Grief is the firing of the synapses in the brain, which releases various hormones throughout the body, and you feel this terrible welling of the knot in your throat and the reaction in your belly in which you're sickened by what has happened. That's grief according to a materialistic worldview. But if you've ever known somebody that's actually died, and if you felt the sadness yourself, you know it goes beyond synapses and hormones. Grief is powerful, and it's overwhelming and sometimes it, it, it disturbs you very deeply and so what do these women do they don't know what else to do so they go to the tomb because they're loyal to christ and uh, quite naturally they want to display their friendship and loyalty to him we might even observe here that the women are braver than the men now peter and john are going to run up a little bit later but they're not here yet where are the rest of the disciples well they're cowering they're hiding because Christ has been crucified and everybody's a little bit embarrassed to be publicly identified with a man who's just been crucified and moreover they're sort of afraid for their own personal well-being and so it's at least the women who are brave enough to come okay so that's natural though perhaps heroic yes let's even talk about the death of Christ here for just a moment I ask you this and truly think about this the crucifixion of Jesus does this also fall in the category of the natural well, does it? Uh, my answer is yes. That's what happens to men that are crucified. They die. Okay? Uh, Jesus was 100% human. He was also 100% divine. He's the Son of God. But as to his humanity, his real human physical body succumbed to the injuries that were perpetrated to him on the cross, as you would die on a cross, as I would die on a cross. Uh, if you take any human being, I don't care how strong he is, I don't care how resilient or how resolved he is, if you take any human being and you flog him with whips and you beat him with sticks and you punch him with fists and you take his hands and nail them to a cross and if you take his feet and pin them to the upright and if you leave him there to hang in the elements, of course he's going to die. And so the death of Jesus too, we might assign that to the realm of the natural. He hung there until he died, which is exactly what would happen 100% of the time this is what usually happens when men are crucified. This is what normally happens when men are crucified. I just want to throw this out there, though. Does the cross only stay in the realm of the natural? Well, something happened there that we believe as Christians. What happened there? A propitiatory sacrifice was given at the cross. He died for a purpose, not as the common criminals to the right and to the left, but he died as an atoning, propitiatory sacrifice for God's people. And I have to press you here. I have to press you. Do you believe that? Yes or no? 
Do you believe that his death had any particular power that goes beyond the natural category? If you believe that, uh, then, then you share in it. And so in this text, quite clearly, on Resurrection Sunday, we do see events that we can put in the realm of the natural. But let's go further than that, and let's look now at the preternatural. Remember what that category was? It's not supernatural, but preternatural are those mysterious, wonderful, hard-to-explain occurrences, but nevertheless can be explained by other created things, again, such as angels or demons or spirits or what have you. That's Aquinas' definition, not mine. So we see the preternatural here, especially in verse 2. Let's look back at our Bibles again. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So here we have a, a, um, a case of occurrences that Aquinas would describe as preternatural. Five things about the angel that we have to observe here. First, let's look at the text. First, he descends from heaven. He apparently has been sent down for this particular purpose. Now, I just pause there and marvel at that a little bit because the Bible tells us that there are myriads and myriads of angels. Right? There's, there's, uh, there's multitudes of angels. There's plethora of angels, perhaps, all around us at any given time, and yet... This one angel gets assigned the task, and I don't know how, I don't know what he did to deserve it, because there's many other angels, but this one angel gets assigned the glorious task of being the first gospel bearer, right? How did, what did he do? I don't know, but here he is. And so what is, what, what about him? Well, look at his appearance. His appearance, verse 3, was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. That, that, that in itself is unusual, because if you know anything about angelology throughout the scriptures in the Old and the New Testaments, they're not always shining like lightning. Sometimes they look rather, well, honestly, you don't even know when you've encountered an angel certain times in the Old Testament, for instance. But this angel, what is he doing? He's glowing like lightning. Why? I'm just conjecturing here because he just came from heaven. He's just been moments ago in the throne room of God himself. And so perhaps, maybe, maybe it's something like Moses coming down from the top of Mount Sinai. Do you remember back in the Old Testament when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai? What's different about his face? Do you remember? It's shining because he's just been in the presence of God. And here the, we're told that the angel, that he, his face is like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. Interesting that he's like lightning because... Actually, Jesus shines brighter than him in the book of Revelation, which we've been studying, Revelation 1.16. Jesus' face looks like the sun. Okay, you can look at lightning, you can't stare at the sun for long, so Christ is greater than the angel. No question about that. What does he do when he comes? Well, he moves the stone. Now, I, I want to pause here and just wonder about that for a minute, because I don't understand exactly how that happens. But, but, but either way, when the angel shows up, when a preternatural experience takes place, the guards begin to then experience uh, this, this sort of, uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a very understandable reaction. There was, a, uh, there was a scholar called Rudolf Otto who actually studied the preternatural. Sproul mentions this in his book, The Holiness of God. You may remember this from chapter 3. 
Uh, but there's an experience that actually comes upon human beings when they encounter the preternatural that Rudolf Otto described as the mysterium tremendum. Maybe you felt this, I don't know, but it's this overwhelming experience that comes upon you whenever you uh, experience the preternatural, wherein you physically want to melt, your knees begin to be, get weak, and your voice begins to tremble, and perhaps you even faint or pass out. That's the mysterium tremendum. It's a real phenomenon. And the soldiers here at the tomb, they experience this, which is why they, they will. And then, of course, the angel speaks. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He says, Christ has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Now, I, um, I marvel here at the preternatural occurrence of the angel because, well, one of the things that sort of really has me curiosified is how the angel moves a stone. I don't understand that. David and I were talking a little bit about this in the office earlier this week. And as much as I understand the bodies, let's put that in air quotes, of, of the angels, I don't exactly understand how they may interact with material things like rocks and stones. Uh, apparently they do. If you read Job, the demons or Satan has the ability to stir up a storm, for instance. But I don't exactly how that, that understand how that works. And so that's a bit of a question to me how a spirit being can manipulate physical objects, I have no good explanation for you. It's preternatural. The mysterium tremendum that comes over the guards, though, I think is also interesting, and it makes me wonder, why is it that men will faint before angels, and yet, ironically, they will strut arrogantly before the living God. You ever thought about that? Why is it that the, almost the universal response in the Bible when people see angels is fear and trembling? Why is it, though, that men don't seem to have that same carryover fear when it comes to the reality of the judgment to come? Uh, men faint before angels but stand arrogantly before the living God. How so? Maybe it's because of God's mercies. Maybe it's because of God's delayed or deferred judgment. And yet, nevertheless, it seems that uh, men are not afraid of the living God. They ought to be. God is far more terrifying than any angel, and yet here are the men. Can you see him? Crumpled in a heap <laughs> by the tomb. Well, believe it or not, the angel is actually somewhat incidental to the story of the resurrection here. He shows up, but his role is, is merely one of announcement. He is a herald bearer. He is one who has come simply to bear an announcement here. And so let's set the preternatural aside, as interesting as that is, and move on then to the most important category on this Resurrection Sunday, which is the supernatural. Now, remember our distinctions from Aquinas. The natural is what we come to expect. It's what usually or always happens. The preternatural is caused by other created things. But what is the supernatural? Do you remember the definition? It's occurrences that can only be caused by what? God himself. And in Aquinas' categories, unmediated by any other created thing. And herein, we have, we have to assign then the resurrection of Christ from the dead to the realm of the supernatural because no angel can perform a resurrection. 
No human being can perform a resurrection from the dead. And yet, if you believe the scriptures, this is exactly what God has done. Now, this is not the only uh, supernatural event in the Bible. In fact, God acts supernaturally rather frequently in the scriptures. Let's think for a moment about these kinds of things that only God himself can do. Well, first of all, God himself can exist. You can't do that. Neither can I. We call that theologically God's aseity, his aseity, the fact that he is of himself. Only God, think about this, only God can literally exist uncaused and independent from any other thing. You can't do that. I can't do that either. We are sustained at every moment by the living God. And if it weren't for the living God, you and I would dissipate from existence. Like that, we would go poof and disappear. So God's existence is supernatural. Uh, Creation, we are told, is supernatural. Whenever God makes something, He doesn't use other means. He doesn't use other stuff. God doesn't work from some sort of primordial Play-Doh to make the world. God speaks and it appears. When God spoke, let there be light, and there was light, that was an act of supernatural power because he did not use any other stuff outside of himself to make light. So too with the earth, so too with the sea, so too with when God bent down in Genesis 2 and he picks up dust. And what does he do with the dust? God breathes life into it and it becomes a living man. That's supernatural. Nobody else can do that. When when God converts a sinner's heart, it is a supernatural event because he does it without your help, directly. Uh, We call that regeneration. It's something that only God can do. And so when God raised Christ from the dead, this was a supernatural event that he himself did outside, or let's say above, any ordinary means. And I'm telling you, this is beautiful and it's true. So what does that mean for us? Uh, Well, (laughs) a lot, and it's all good. First, it means that the atonement has been accepted. And this is where we have to go back to the cross again. Remember how we, we paused for a moment and I asked you if the death of Jesus was in the realm of the natural only? Or does it seep out into the other categories? Well, in fact, it, it, it does sort of seep out into the, the category of the supernatural as well because what the resurrection means for us is that the atonement of Christ on the cross has been accepted by God. His death is not just like any other or every other death. Jesus' death avails for us because it has that propitiatory power to actually take away the sins of His elect. The death of Christ actually has saving supernatural power. That's why, listen, Paul, in the book of Romans, Paul connects the resurrection to our justification, yes? He says this in Romans 4.25, that Christ was raised for our justification. Now, sometimes I think that's a little bit of a strange turn of phrase because I usually am used to hearing things like Christ's crucifixion was for our justification. But here... Paul tells us he was raised for our justification. Why is that? Because if the, if the cross was alone by itself, it would not have the saving power that it has when it is attended then with the completion of the atonement act, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so, yes, this resurrection then, the cross itself, has supernatural power as God imputes to it 
that saving efficiency that we need to have our sins taken away. This is very good news. Everybody with me so far? And if that's true, well, what of it? Well, then we experience what is called forgiveness. Forgiveness. The freeing power, the new life power of having your sins absolved and your guilt taken away. If you are in Christ, then of course you have experienced this beautiful freedom of having your sin and your guilt and your shame. Like we used to be like condemned prisoners, but now we've been set free because of this event. We're no longer walking around like dead men walking, but we're walking around as free and alive in faith and in new life power that he gives us through the resurrection. Not only that, but let's go further. We ourselves will one day be raised from the dead. Yeah? That's right. Because Christ is also the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that that same resurrection power, that the corpse of Jesus, does it sound irreligious to talk about it like the, that way? The corpse of Jesus Christ, his dead body, was raised to life at the resurrection, so also our corpses will one day be raised to new life in him. So we're longing for that resurrection that he makes available to us in the gospel. And then not only that, but if all of that is true, then we can go even further. We could talk about the realities of the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, this material world, materialists, we believe will one day be gloriously remade. As Isaiah foresaw, as Peter discusses, as the book of Revelation discusses, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ from the dead is like the first fruits of that great renewal of all things. Uh, the Greek word is the palingenesia, the again creation. Okay? So let's wrap up this morning here with just two applications that I think are right here in the text. I did not have to work very hard to come up with applications today. Usually I do. Usually the applying is sort of the hardest part of preaching in my judgment, but here the applications are staring me in the face. So let's look at them. Let's skip ahead to verse 8 and 9. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. Two applications. First, if the resurrection is true, and I am asserting that it is not only true but beautiful, then that makes us into worshipers. We must be worshipers. Cannot leave inert from this kind of a supernatural event. You can't walk away from this. This turns us into worshipers. We're believers, yes, but worshiping believers. Notice the response uh, that the women perform here when they encounter Jesus. It says, look, they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. The posture even. What do they do? Fall down on the ground, just like the soldiers. Only they're not, they're not passed out from fear. They're clutching onto his feet. They're down on the ground. They're holding onto his feet. They're not standing opposed to him as, the, as though they're sort of in opposition to one another. Nor are they standing next to him as though they were his peers. 
they're not following on behind him like they used to when they were merely disciples, but there's actually a transformation that has taken place here. Now they've become worshipers, and so they get down on their hands and knees, and they clutch onto his ankles for dear life because their master, their teacher, their rabbi was literally dead and now is literally alive again. So they're worshiping him just like would be appropriate if you and I saw him today. And I think that this is really a wonderful expression here, that as they did so, they were filled with, look at this, fear and great joy. Verse 8. Huh. Huh. I say, huh, because normally the expression in the Bible is fear and trembling. Look it up. Usually we often see in the scriptures fear matched with trembling. Those things go together uh, rather naturally, right? But, but here, fear and great joy. And so this is the heart of the true worshiper. And not only that, but what did they do here? So worship is the first application. This ought to turn us into worshipers. Secondly here, they go and tell. Okay? Again, I'm not trying to be particularly creative here this morning, but that's exactly what they do. They go out and they tell. You have to tell somebody, and so that's exactly what they did. Um, and that's what people do that have been changed by the resurrection. It says they ran to tell his disciples. Now, let's just finish up here with our three categories again one more time. You know, sometimes we see something in the natural world that's it's really beautiful. Let's say a rainbow, easily explainable by natural phenomenon. Rainbows occur not every day, but, but you get the idea normally, usually. And yet if you saw a very beautiful rainbow today, would you be tempted to tell somebody about it? Yeah, you probably would. You probably would. And if you saw something that was beyond the natural category into the preternatural, let me ask you, if you saw an angel today on your way out the door, would you tell somebody? Guarantee you would. You could not. It'd be the first thing you mentioned at lunch. And yet here we are looking at the resurrection of the Son of God, a supernatural event. How many supernatural events will you encounter in your life? Well, here's one. So go and tell. Go share that good news with somebody, just like the women did when they met Christ on that day. Let's